0: Yeah, Scrooge gets his start in business at a rubber chicken factory.
1: (laughs) Yes, Yes. of all the things (laughs) in the world.
2: Welcome to the Skippy and Fanny Show at the movies.
1: I just earned five shillings to walk through the snow with this uncooked turkey.
2: It's a lot of money, though. Yeah. Like five shillings is what? Like what is that today?
1: It's actually quite. It's probably actually either quite a bit or nothing. I'm well,
2: <laughs> not Google.
0: sure. Is this an economics podcast?
2: All right. I'm putting how much was five shillings worth in 1880? Although let's find what what is five shillings. What is a shilling? Is that just a pound?
1: A shilling is a quarter. <laughs> Yes, we just fell apart now. I love this. A shilling, if I'm if I'm confident, a shilling is 25 pence. Oh, they don't even pence. exist. They don't exist anymore.
2: No, because it's 1 20th of a pound or 12 pence. So, hold on.
1: Ah, tw- hmm.
2: Oh, no, it's not worth a lot. No, this is bad. Today, that would be worth $75.80. So, if you think about it, for about, uh, what is it, like six and a half minutes, he carries around an uncooked turkey.
1: And I got to eat.
2: That he also gets to eat, and he gets $75.80. Like, that's, what, is that an hour? That's like an absurd amount an hour. Like, yeah. that's beyond a living way. If he could do that all day, I mean, let's be honest, it's a really big turkey for a small little bunny fellow. But Are
1: we? Doesn't that mean that we just learned that this, this one child earned more an hour on Christmas Day than Bob Cratchit earned an hour the day before?
2: I mean, very possibly earned more per hour that day than Bob Cratchit had earned that entire year.
1: Cool. Noted.
2: To be fair, Bob Cratchit did get a raise and have his mortgage wiped.
1: Mm-hmm. But that, that was a Christmas present. Christmas Eve was still terrible. I,
2: that is true, but, you know, New Leaf and all that. Like, not every day you have three ghosts visit you and the last one is literally just death scaring you be- the bejesus out of you. You
1: know. Fair enough.
2: Just saying. All right, well, in any case, I'm Sean. I'm Brandon.
0: (laughs) And I'm Mike. We should keep all of this. All of it,
1: please.
2: (laughs) Uh, And on today's show, we will be discussing 1992's greatest cinematic achievement, The Muppet Christmas Carol, directed by Brian Henson with a screenplay by Jerry Jewell and music by Miles Goodman and Paul Williams, starring, among many others, The Great Gonzo, Rizzo the Rat, Bunsen Honeydew, Beaker, Miss Piggy, Fozzie Bear, Sam Eagle, Statler and Waldorf, Michael Caine, and many, many more.
1: But before we get into that, a friendly reminder that we want to hear from you. So please share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We would still like to put together a listener mailbag episode with your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, and more, so please get those thoughts in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we just spent several minutes debating how much five shillings is worth. So if you want to engage in that economic theory crafting with us, you can do that as well. What can you buy with five shillings?
0: I do have to inform you that 1992 brought us both Encino Man and Mariachi. So there is competition.
1: Oh, Lord.
2: Because <laughs> Encino Man's not the one with the, the, the caveman, is it? Yeah. Or is that the yeah. one with the caveman? Yeah,
0: it's not *Blast from the Past*, where he is good at ballroom dancing.
2: Oh, got it. Got that one it. I okay. really like. God, the f- Brendan Fraser. What are you doing, my bro?
0: I mean, he's back in things now. It's great.
2: Mm-hmm. He is doing back in things, and people do seem to really like him. And he's turned into a happy Wyoming dad. Yeah, so, so that's good. I don't know if he lives in Wyoming, but he just seems like that's kind of the person he's become.
0: Speaking of dudes that go through something and then come back and are uh, having a good time. A Christmas Carol. We should talk about the movie.
2: <laughs> <laughs> a Christmas Carol. So look, y'all know what this movie's about. It's got Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a grumpy old fart. who says bah humbug and doesn't believe in Christmas spirit. He treats his employees like crap. He's a penny pincher. Everybody knows that he doesn't give to charity. He doesn't care about anybody. He hates when people say Merry Christmas around him. He's like really mean to his nephew and all that stuff. And then he has a shocking revelation when... First, the doorknob of his house turns into the face of his deceased friend and scares the bejesus out of him. In this movie... The Marleys are, are in fact two different Marleys rather than in the story when it's just one Marley. They had to do that because you have Statler and Waldorf and they only work as a duo and that is required in the union contract for the Muppets. So you just need to make sure to keep that stuff in check. So in any case, he's visited by three ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of the, fe- uh, the, ghost of the yet to come, basically. And they show him par- parts, bits and parts of his life that sort of show him the person he has become and he turns a new leaf at the end and he throws a turkey at a bunny and there we go and that's basically it he's nice to his people again and he like apparently becomes super best friends with like a little Little Tiny Tim. And that's like the basic premise. This version has some slight differences, the biggest one being that it is told as a frame story with uh, Gonzo playing Charles Dickens with his trusty rat friend Rizzo, who travel through time and follow this and tell the kind of story, having bits and pieces from the actual book, as well as, you know, them getting often smacked through the air into the snow by windows that they happen to be standing in front of. And it happens so many times that I wondered why they didn't just stop standing there.
0: Then it wouldn't be funny.
1: Yeah. That's it's true. not slapstick if somebody doesn't
0: take the slap. Yeah. It's like Rizzo Rizzo can only go through mm. the, uh, the grating on the door when it's funny. We lo- you should have learned this in Who Framed Roger Rabbit.
2: I know. You're, I mean, you're correct. But I'm just saying that, you know, they don't learn lessons.
0: They are there to impart lessons and eat apples.
2: Precisely. A lot of app Rizzo, okay. Can we just talk about Rizzo? That rat <laughs> eats a lot. And yet, he's still a fairly tiny little
0: rat.
1: Yeah, this is how rats work.
0: So what if, in fact, it's Rizzo who has the dimensional transport powers? <laughs> oh, And so that's why he has to consume all those calories.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, yeah, because every time he does that, it's like 2,500 calories gone. And so he's just jumping around constantly. And, and Gonzo doesn't understand it. Because he's like, dude, you eat, you're eating all our apples. We can't make a profit. And he's just like, I keep traveling right. through time. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah,
0: uh, Rizzo has a blood sugar crash, and that's why they disappear from the film for like 20 minutes.
2: My God. Mm-hmm. I've cracked it. Noted. You've cracked the
0: code.
1: <laughs> Whoa.
0: So something else about this version is it's a musical. Correct.
1: It is. It is quite a musical.
0: And there are Muppets.
1: There are a lot
2: of Muppets. There are so many Muppets in this movie. Like you
0: said, it's in their union contract. You hire the Muppets, you're getting the Muppets.
2: There's even Fraggle Rock Muppets in this movie. So that's how many Muppets are here. There's so many.
0: Right. And and inexplicable lobster muppets. I know. Just randomly at the end,
2: there's just lobster. Like in the second store, why wouldn't they be in the floor? It's got to be a pain in the butt to go upstairs. I mean, why not? Think about it. You got to go upstairs as a lobster. You've got tiny little little regular legs and your two front legs aren't exactly useful for that.
0: What if there is a sh- a short railing and they can use their claws?
2: Oh, and they just like climb up like, yep. oh, that might explain why they're so buff. <laughs> Well, in any case, it is a musical. It features a number of original tunes. If you get the soundtrack, you will get extra tunes. There are two additional tunes or potentially three additional tunes that are on the uh, soundtrack that are not in the movie. Depending on which version of the movie you watch, you will also not get the breakup song that occurs in one version. If you watch on Disney+, Plus, you don't get the breakup song. Sorry. Uh, So you will maybe a little bit uh, confused as to why Rizzo is so sad. And it's because the breakup song is quite sad. It is a sad little song, but in any case, <laughs> we got a movie to talk about. Yes, Brandon, you were two when this came out, apparently. Yes,
1: I was an infant. This is the first time that I have seen the Muppet Christmas Carol from the from beginning to end. Every time that I've ever seen a frame or a scene of this movie in the background of someone else's house in December while I was a child, I have never seen BEFORE the Ghost of Christmas yet to come. So I spent my entire time thinking that this was actually a sour movie that I would never enjoy. And then I learned that I actually have feelings. So, okay, (laughs) a, a lot of thoughts are taking place in my brain. Because first, we have to start from the fact that this is an adaptation of perhaps one of the most enduring Christmas stories of all time. The only story more popular than the Christmas Carol than a Christmas carol. It's perhaps the story of Christ himself. Obviously, as an adaptation, it's easy for me, I like my critic brain to go, I have a lot of feelings about this as an adaptation because it does so many cute and wonderful things simply by just introducing Muppets into the space. They don't need to change or radically upset the story as it were even though they make two Marlies, which i have a which i have thoughts about which i will get to at a moment but also the thing that i adore about this movie first and foremost is not only is it a musical which is fine we make musicals of things all the time but these songs are impeccably written the song when the when the ghosts of the Marlies appear perhaps one of the most poetic things that I've heard all year. That is an outstanding song.
0: The information that we have say who the composer is. Yeah, so
2: there's two composers for this. The person who's mostly credited in the film is Paul Williams who is historically one of the major composers and writers for Muppet musical related stuff. But Miles Goodman is, as far as I understand it, the primary composer. And that's because Paul Williams was coming out of rehab and helped on some of the songs. But my understanding didn't take a central role and in large part because he had a very serious alcohol and cocaine habit and was coming out of being, you know, clean, basically. That's kind of the people behind the music.
1: And I think just just in the interest of being as concise as possible, um, I think that Miles Goodman composed the music, but the lyrics were additionally written by Paul Williams.
2: Yeah, that seems more accurate. Yeah, I mean, there's there's great songs in here. I mean, there's, you know, there's the Scrooge song where they basically tell us what kind of man Scrooge is mm-hmm. in excruciating detail behind his back. <laughs>
0: And it's it's in the it's in the place where the Happy Village song should be in a musical. Mm -hmm. Right.
2: Then there's, you know, there's Thankful Heart, which is sung at the end by Michael Caine. I think it is worth noting that Michael Caine did two wonderful things about this movie. One is he fought very hard to get this role. Because he apparently was evading paying taxes and hiding in the US while the episodes that were shot from Muppet Things were being shot in the UK and he couldn't go and do it. And basically a bunch of his friends and people he knew in the movie business were like, this is the greatest experience ever, go do it. And so he fought for the role. And then the other thing is he basically told Brian Henson to his face saying, I'm coming into this role and I I will not be doing any Muppet business. I am treating this like it's the Royal Shakespeare Company Mm -hmm. and I'm doing a dramatic portrayal of Scrooge. And Brian Henson said, yes, go for it. (laughs) And so that's why you don't see any winking from him. He is he is playing cruel Scrooge throughout this. So when we get the Thankful Heart song. It's also adorable. Michael Caine's not a great singer by any stretch of the imagination, but also it doesn't really matter because the heart's really there. It's also a movie that he is really grateful to have done because it's a movie he can basically give his, his grandchildren, which is a thing that some actors actually prize and value. Raul Julia, for example, did the <laughs> same thing. So
1: so I, I wanted to, to add to that point because like that's one of the things that I love the most about this movie. Not just other Muppet movies have actors obviously lampshade the fact that they know that they are in a presumably impossible situation being in this place but michael kane is very good at playing an anguished old man there are multiple times in this movie where i just look at his face and go you're going through a lot and i wish that these ghosts would just let you go to sleep because it, like, he, he is actually like dramatically committed to that performance and it's actually very... That makes it one of the best Christmas Carol movies that I've ever seen. Not to say that no one else has ever genuinely cons- considered how to embody Scrooge, but the fact that he is embodying Scrooge in this way is like very like ar- arresting to me, personally.
0: Yeah, because this it's a huge character arc in one night. And so the amount that that burden falls so solidly on the actor's shoulders to sell the journey that Scrooge is so distraught and so unsettled and so discombobulated that he his hardness is, there's cracks in it enough for empathy to seep through
1: yeah one of the things about a christmas carol that makes it such an enduring story is that It's one of very few fables that have been written in the world for adults and not for children.
2: Yeah, in a kind of ironic way, because this is a movie. This movie adaptation, right, is clearly meant for children, or at least children is going to be a dominant portion of the audience, or at least family will Mm -hmm. be. And so therefore it must be suitable for children but you're you're not wrong that it is a story that historically is not really intended for kids,
1: yeah, it's moralist for adults. Children don't have anything to learn from Ebenezer Scrooge. They either share no. already or they'll learn how to share from another story. A Christmas Carol is specifically for a certain kind of adult, and especially in the year. 2021 where we're experiencing a great deal of labor woes all over the world. Perhaps it's the kind of movie people need to see more often.
2: I, I th- I'm glad you bring that up because this was a thing I was thinking a lot about as I was watching this. Because like at the end of this movie, you know, any version of Christmas Carol, we're supposed to sympathize with Scrooge. Right. We're supposed to like kind of like, yeah, we think he's a bad guy at the beginning. We understand some of his pain and where it comes from. You know, he's made mistakes in his life and he's had to live with these mistakes and he's done all these things. But at the end, we're supposed to go Scrooge has changed. He's become a better man. He's become a charitable, loving person. You know, he's recognized his mistakes. He's become a better man. Naturally, we have to kind of give a little bit of leeway here because, as Mikey pointed out, it happens in a night. That's a lot of change for any single human body. Mm -hmm. But when you watch this in the context of the world we've been living in, it's sort of a thing where, like, there's an extra layer of kind of suspension of disbelief that you kind of have to give. Because on the one hand, you have the people of the world who are the Scrooges of the world, effectively, who would not learn the lesson. But then you get people like Michael Sheen. Who just announced that he's basically a not for profit actor because he's just going to take the amount of money he needs to just live comfortably and everything else he's just going to like funnel into charity organizations and local groups and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we live in this like really bizarre time where I wonder if we're going to see like backlash to this kind of story because it's offering essentially redemption for a person who really is a bad man. He is... Scrooge ain't a good dude. He's a real nasty piece of work.
1: I'm sure that I've encountered, at least in one critical space, the question that... A Christmas Carol exists to recuperate the identity of billionaires in the first place. That it presents the idea that wealthy persons can indeed have enough money and power that they can be good and do good. And that means that you should trust that they will whenever it happens.
2: Or alternatively, you have to hope that three ghosts are going to visit and scare the living daylights out of him. Mm -hmm. So that he does make the change and does the thing.
1: Maybe that's the movie we need to make. Maybe the Christmas Carol adaptation that we need right now, well, uh, well, in 2022, is a movie about like three commoners who just so happen to have very good special effects training who just decide to become ghosts.
2: They're Mysterios? Is that what you're saying?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, like my note on this, uh, uh, one of my notes on this uh, film is that Christmas Carol is about terrorizing the rich into empathy. And the rich are so insulated from consequences and from having to deal with everyday people who are not part of the rich and are not their servants that to a certain extent, it does require a supernatural move to be able to disrupt the lives of the truly rich in the way that scrooge's life was disrupted
2: there's just an interesting element about this scrooge figure here because he it is that on the one hand right this supernatural effort has to be done but it's also like showing this pathway because in this movie it shows us fairly clearly right which is that other rich people also don't like scrooge and you can just imagine the scenes were shown of his his death right his his you know, the future that's yet to come, when Scrooge has died, and they're basically laughing over his dead body, and people are like pilfering his sheets, and all this stuff is happening. Those same people would be doing the same thing to one another, because like, they're they're, like the three pigs, they're like, or four pigs, or whatever, who are like these other bit rich business people. They absolutely, right, one of them dies, they're all saying the same kinds of stuff, because they're all these very callous, you know, not really caring people. And I think part of like the message that, You know, this version, I think, tries to bring out even a lot more because it's dealing with cute puppets is that, like, if you're going to be a wealthy man, like having wealth and doing nothing of of substance with it that is beneficial to other people, that is only in service of yourself or your quote unquote rich friends is ultimately like going to lead you down a life of being a miserable person nobody respects or cares about. The fact that he dies, nobody is really sad. I mean, the person that's the closest to being sad about it is is Cratchit, Bob Cratchit. But even then, it's sort of like he's doing it out of courtesy. He doesn't really miss Scrooge. Scrooge is horrible to him, but he's doing it out of a sense of like common decency of like, you know, you respect people when they die and you don't spit on their grave and those kinds of things. And so if there's a lesson that Scrooge is supposed to pick up here, it's that, yeah, if you're going to be a wealthy person, then the kind of wealthy person you should be is the wealthy person everybody loves because they take their wealth and they do good by the community around them rather than hoarding it away.
0: Right, because this because when the book was released uh, legendarily, there was a massive upsurge in charitable giving in London. Oh. And like the politics of the time in London and in England would not have had a lot of space, especially in popular fiction, for like the actually aggressively leftist version of billionaires shouldn't exist. You should not only give away all of your money, uh, but dismantle the very uh, infrastructure and architecture that allowed you to um, accrue this much money. Like he's a landlord and a money lender. So just giving a bunch of money and forgiving his employees mortgage, it is not like a transformational, it's not transformational on a broader social level. But again, there is a certain amount of conciliatory space or a conciliatory move that I think is often made with this work in adaptation.
2: I mean, on some level, you have to, right? Because this is, you know, it's a two-hour movie. You can also have like a 30-minute section at the end of like, let's show Scrooge and his systematic changes he's made. Yeah. Because then people would check out.
1: Let's show Ebenezer Scrooge building roads.
2: And I would say in this this version, you know, Michael Caine's performance at least strongly suggests that that is the case. Like we see his emotion as he is, you know, encountering these these ghosts and experiencing the life that he is living and the consequences of that life. We can feel his pain and his hurt at the idea that Tiny Tim will not survive. Like that actually like stabs him d- deep down and Michael Caine gives a really good performance here. So I think there's a degree to which we can believe that he is a changed man at the end. And we just kind of, ha- it's its sort of like a fantasy, I mean, as a fan- it's literally a fantasy, right? It's just a horror, a dark fantasy, a horror fantasy. We have to sort of accept that this is going to be a change that exceeds past Christmas. That when he says, as he says a bunch of different times, that it's not just Christmas Day, I want to bring this spirit, you know, to every day. I want i want that to follow me through the rest of my life. We, we're led to believe it, at least in the performance alone.
1: The thing about A Christmas Carol as a story in general is that... A lot of the assumptions that we make about its capacity to be a story with a reasonable beginning, middle, and end are assumptions that we make because it's Christmas time, because if we didn't, Christmas time would constantly be horrible for all of us anyway. Like, there were moments in the movie when I was like, in another movie, it would be unbelievable that Ebenezer Scrooge is responding in this way at this moment. But I do believe, if only because the movie has established that this is the kind of period where people will be emotionally volatile, that he is having an emotionally volatile moment, having witnessed the thing that he has just witnessed in the past or in the present or in the future. And I think that that matters, and again, this is about the recuperation of the identity of billionaires, but i I guess it does kind of matter to tell the story that a man with a lot of money can, in fact care about a dead child he does not know because that doesn't happen anywhere else but in fiction,
2: yeah, and I mean, and like his care for this kid is is interesting because it comes in the Christmas present version and it and it occurs when he's watching the Crotchet family. You know, spend time together, and he sees this little boy who I think that the narrative that we're getting here is like well he is he's a disabled child who has has probably got whooping cough or something common for that time he's suffering, but yet he goes to church and he's trying to bring good cheer and he's trying to find the the joy and wonder in life and bring love to everybody and He's sitting here looking at this and going like, "I have everything, everything has basically been mine." And this little boy who is is struggling in life is a more joyful, loving person than I am. What is wrong with me? I think that's why he connects with that boy so much, because when he's in the past section, right, he sees some of the mistakes he made in his life when he deprived himself of love because he sought love of money. He sought fortune and wealth and all of these things instead of The other kinds of stuff that one would do to find joy in life, like being with friends and family, etc. And he's cast all that aside. But he sees this little boy and it just, it like hits him of like, this is, this is the boy I might have been once upon a time. And I have killed that child in myself. And I'm watching this kid who I want to have everything in life because he's so good.
1: It's also worth noting in like a parallel to that point that... The story that we see of Scrooge in the movie, one of the closest parallels to the original story, if not for two two ghosts of Marley, is that when he was younger, he actually embraced the fact that other people were cherry and hopeful and positive during Christmas time, and spent a lot of that time worrying a lot about them and their money. Like the scene when we first meet Fozziwig, this movie's Fezziwig, So brilliant. Everything about that scene is brilliant.
2: With Animal on
0: the Drums.
1: Yo! Animal on the Drums is the best part of the entire movie. Just like him playing the triangle and going.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Scrooge gets his start in business at a rubber chicken factory.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes, (laughs) Of all the things in the world. But like. The way that that scene is framed is interesting because it's not implied, I mean, it's obviously implied as a concern about money. In any other circumstance, one would still think of that as generally miserly. But like, it's not Scrooge's money. (laughs) It's his boss's money. He's worried about the finances of the entire company. But he's also not against the idea of the fact that this is a Christmas party and all of these people are cool. When the Ghost of Christmas Past brings him to this moment, he notes the fact that his boss was a wonderful boss and these parties were the best parties on this block. That was a thing that he knew. Nobody had to convince him. That wasn't a thing that the Ghost of Christmas Past brought him here to learn. He already knew that. He just didn't learn that that was a thing that he could also do. That he could also be cool.
0: Yeah, it's... Because in the opening song the one of the refrains says, uh, and Scrooge is getting worse. So it, it does appear that in this version, we're to believe that Scrooge's kind of emotional relationship to like charity and Christmas uh, just had motion up and down across his life. And that when he was getting his business started, it seemed like the love of money kind of traded places in his heart with or took up the room that he otherwise had for these other things and for joy. And that that trajectory was not interrupted between when he and Bell break up and when the story starts. And that there like, there probably was just a slow progression from that point. It's not that he had reached decades-long stasis. There was a the sense from the populace that it was a progressive lack of empathy. And that it's still
1: progressive, because there are two other things that actually struck me as particularly interesting as well. The fact that Scrooge always refers to his nephew as his dear nephew, which is a minor thing, but like... This is a person that with one song has already spent a great deal of energy to convince us that he has no love of friends or family. But he does love his nephew. Well, he, I
2: I think he says dear with a little sarcasm. I
1: mean, (laughs) yes, it's there. But he could have not said it. He doesn't say it for anybody else. And two, when we meet Belle, it genuinely does strike me, at least, that he does, in fact, love Belle. He just is bad at prioritizing that love. And when he loses it, that is his last actual, like, constant connection to humanity that he has. And at that point, he just kind of falls into selfishness because he's not, he's, he doesn't have any opportunities to actually be emotionally close to anybody else at that point, which is particularly troubling.
0: Yeah, because it, it seems from, or we could, uh, we could take from the parties that the Marley's were kind of ahead of Scrooge on the kind of arc of hardening their hearts. And that, okay, so Scrooge is spending time with the Marleys and with Belle and Fezziwig. And then the Marleys and Scrooge go off and start their business. And so he's not around one positive influence. And the Marleys are probably some kind of negative influence or the Marleys and Scrooge feed off of each other's greed. And so like in the... The framework of you become like the people you spend the most time with as people come in and out of his life his emotional gravity his orbit falls into their gravity
2: another thing that really sits out here is that while there is gradual progression to his decline into selfishness and i would argue a bit of self-flagellation whether that's in him intentionally or consciously doing it or otherwise like, the the thing that stands out to me is, is the scene when before the Mar- Marley and Marley bit begins, right? When Statler and Waldorf show up, which is him sitting in his house, which is a, presumably a large house of some value. But there's very little in the house. There's, there's almost nothing really in there. He's got this chair that's kind of old and it's not tattered, but it's clearly not really been cleaned all that much. He's wearing... Really, like, he's got one item that he, he prizes, which is his, his robe. The one robe, his dressing robe that he has, that he worries he's damaged because he he thinks it's a ghost and he smashes it with his his fire poker gizmo. And when he's eating, he's eating some some cheese and, like, a loaf of bread.
1: Very good bread. Very good cheese. But he just eats it.
2: Yeah, but it's not, like a meal. There's no, like, fine wine. There's not fine dining. He's not wearing fine clothes. He's not surrounded himself with fineries of any kind. Even in in his life, in every single way, like, post-Bell, has been increasingly depriving himself, either of the benefits of the wealth he has, he has clearly been hoarding. So he's not even benefiting there, which is a thing that at least Fozzywig does. You know, he's got wealth, and he's benefiting by having these lavish parties, and, you know, having a good to time with his rubber chickens but he's not doing that. But he's also depriving himself of his time with his nephew, who is, as far as we know, his only living relative, who still shows up at his place of work to wish him Merry Christmas and bring cheer to him, even though he's a sour old man. He deprives himself of that. He has no friends. You know, the one person who in his, he sees pretty much on a day to day basis, Bob Cratchit, he treats kind of like crap and and the man's afraid of him, right? He's restricted himself from all of the human experience or Muppet experience as this movie would have it that one could possibly have and it seems like on some level he's punishing himself by not actually taking advantage of the joys that he can create with the wealth that he's actually got which at the end he sort of kind of does by finding that actually the joy is in the friendship and the the found family and all these kinds of things that are sort of lightly hinted at but in his life he's just he's just taken it from himself which also may also contribute to the fact that when we do see him being extremely generous at the end it is such a dramatic shift. Yes.
0: Do we think that we should we should take that as like like an indication that he has become brittle in his like self-constraint that the visitation from the ghosts maybe wouldn't have worked 5 years previous that he had to reach some kind of tipping point?
2: Maybe. When you think about it, like that's kind of how people work sometimes when they set their mind on something that maybe isn't beneficial to them, that sometimes people clamp down hard at that at the beginning phases and then they might loosen up later, you know, because of life experience. Just Scrooge did like the maximally extreme version of this, because presumably like 8000 years have gone between when he and Belle broke up and and this movie Mm -mm. begins or he's still 25 and he's just aged in a year, as as much as we're shown.
0: Well, yeah, he's a Highlander, so... <laughs>
1: right, <laughs> sure. the only one. <laughs> so, this is an aside, mostly, but it's a thing that occurred in my brain, so I'm going to say it aloud. If you're listening, this is not encouragement to make that movie, because I am afraid of what Hollywood would do to that movie but I'm going to describe the movie that occurs in my brain, which is I would love to see a version of A Christmas Carol that interprets that same kind of loneliness and emptiness as struggling with social anxiety and what that adds to the actual conversation about Scrooge as a person. Because otherwise, kind of accidentally tell the story of the fact that wanting to be alone or struggling with... Spending time with people is a byproduct of miserliness, and I think that that's kind of uncool. The part that bothers me, the part that is emotionally arresting to me about the moment when, for instance, Scrooge is eating dinner and it's just one loaf of bread and one large hunk of cheese with him sitting in front of his fireplace, isn't the fact that he's not spending that time with family, or necessarily the fact that he's like not enjoying the fruits of uh his capitalist nature but simply the fact that he's given an opportunity by multiple people to at least be a source of joy for them and he deprives them of that joy so he can return to his own life of joylessness The thing that I get from that as a result is, he has learned that there is no real joy in the world. And we let him know as a result, the ghosts let him know as a result, that there can be joy and that joy is manufactured. And that doesn't make it any less genuine because it's actually coming thoroughly from you. But like, I'd like to know what that movie would look like from a Scrooge who is also not actually not comfortable spending time with people. And that is not the reason why we do not like him or trust him.
0: So if Scrooge is a rags to riches story, You have young Scrooge who gets bad schooling or whatever and grows up with a zillion people around him. And he's like constantly overstimulated. And at the beginning, like in his young adulthood, wealth buys him quiet. It means that he has space that is his own, that he can go home and not be constantly surrounded by the noise of people around him, especially in Victorian London, which a lot of the writing that I, that I see about it is like, it was a very busy, bustling, crowded, loud, frequently not sanitary because there were bad public services kind of place. And so that, that provides some context and some grounding in character background to what may have informed or like shaped some of that anxiety and give him a more concrete motivation for the accumulation of wealth that then becomes this like, self-perpetuating, um, self-flagellating um, structure. And
1: that ends by him discovering that he can still use this to benefit other people and to give joy to other people, but that doesn't diminish the fact that nothing is wrong with wanting to spend time by yourself.
0: Yeah, because he can he can go to the Cratchits and be a very good like surrogate father, uncle, whatever, to Tiny Tim, and then still go home and be able to decompress in space that he controls that could be quiet when he wants to.
1: And that time he gets to decompress with a nice good cup of tea.
2: Yes, like my god dude, you live in you live in England and you don't have an absurdly large tea collection? What are you doing?
1: Just like this large piece of bread by itself. Like, I was actually, like, very worried for Michael and in that scene. It was like, that bread looks very stiff.
2: He probably bought it that day, but then again, because he doesn't appear to ever really use his money for anything, maybe it's like crusty old bread that has just been sitting in his cab. He buys in bulk. He just buys it and sticks it in a cabinet.
1: I don't think it's a wise idea to buy bread in bulk in, the, in Victoria and London. I think that I think that just so kind much. of starts mildewing immediately upon contact with the air.
2: Unless it's hard a hardtack, and then maybe you might be fine.
0: Do we want to touch on any of the specific Muppets or other songs that we haven't talked about?
1: I immediately have a feeling it's a very small thing in my brain. I get, in part, why there are two Marleys in the movie. I also don't kind of get it. For context... The Muppet Christmas Carol is dedicated to two persons at the beginning of the movie. It is dedicated both to Jim Henson, who passed away and whose son directs the film, but it's also dedicated to Richard Hunt, who is, among other roles in The Muppet Show, the original voice of Statler. Yep. So, of course, they rec- they recast Statler for the movie, which is fine. It was still lovely. It's not like I would have noticed either way. But the thing that sticks in my brain, when I explain that it sticks in my brain because I am from the Caribbean, you will understand. There are two uh, Marley ghosts in the movie. One of them is named Jacob Marley, the same Jacob Marley that we know from the story. The other one is named Robert Marley. I want you to pause and mm, think about mm, that in your brain.
2: Bob Marley. Yeah. Why?
1: We only needed the one ghost. The song still rocked, though. It would have been less cool if we didn't have both Stadler and Waldorf. I get that. But, like, why? Why did you name the ghost? Why did you settle on that name?
2: Well, I will just let you know that uh, that was intentional, because you may remember the Wailing Cash Boxes that sing with oh, the Marley's. That is in fact a nod to Bob Marley oh and my the Whalers.
1: I'm so <laughs> mad at that. It's so clever and yet so silly. And I would've expected it in this movie of all movies. Okay, cool. Alright, I guess. Cool.
2: There there's some logic to it. A lot of the Muppets that are cast as named characters in this, they're cast because in some way they fit, at least in some characteristic, to the character that they're playing. And if you think back to who Marley is and which Muppet character most fits Marley, it's going to be either Statler or Waldorf. Mm -hmm. Like they're pretty up there. And since Statler and Waldorf never do anything except as a duet, there's a lot of like different layers of what's going on. One is it's sort of in honor of the original voices for the characters, in honor of Henson and Hunt. And there's obviously some like choice decisions they made about making references because they wanted to be cute. I get it. I personally find don't find terrible fault with it, but I think mostly because Statler and Waldorf really are just one character. Uh they're really not like two separate characters, and maybe the Marley thing is just them being a little too cute. <laughs> I mean, although singing cash boxes is kinda of fun. So mm-hmm.
1: that song is actually my favorite song in the movie, so I don't I'm not gonna judge it too harshly.
2: Marley and Marley.
1: Ooh It's it's so perfectly <laughs> written. One of the things that I love so much about the way that those verses are written in that song is that the second rhyme at the beginning of every verse is an, is an internal rhyme of a longer word than the original one. They rhyme black with shackles. I'm like, that's Brilliant though, that's actually really clever. So I have a lot of feelings about that song in particular. It's very cool. Every time I ever meet a selfish person in real life, I'm probably just gonna start singing lines from that song <laughs> directly at them.
0: I love—I uh, don't remember which one of Statler and Waldorf, but parts of the song are sung by just one of them, and the other, like when that start when that is about to happen, the other one basically pushes spotlight onto the one that is. This acting, uh, which makes me think mm-hmm. of Mary Robinette Kowal talking about puppetry and how the you use the puppet's attention to frame and direct the audience's attention.
1: It's very well done. It's very cool.
2: I think what's really fascinating here is like, this is Brian Henson's debut as director, and he's got huge shoes to fill. And there's, there's other people filling big shoes on this as well. Steve Whitmire, who takes on the role of Kermit. After Jim Henson's death, that's not exactly a small feat, given that Henson defines Kermit for you know literally forever. When you look at this, the, the the choices and the design, whether it's the sets, the character designs, even some of the the special effects choices, the way scenes are shot and pose, how the uh, various Muppets are brought in and used, like even the opening scene, there's literally a ridiculous moment of this carriage that's going by and someone's stealing like a, like a watermelon off the back, and the watermelon just starts screaming like "No! I'm being taken away!" <laughs> like it's so silly, and it's only there for a moment, but it is. It so much sets the scene so perfectly of this opening, you know, with the, the inter music and seeing this sort of city, this version of London. Directing wise, this is just—it's very immersive, which is mm-hmm. kind of the point. Like you—you kind of have to forget that they're puppets. Yeah, I mean, and that even in the context of a movie that repeatedly breaks the fourth wall.
0: And there's this interesting switch where Gonzo and Rizzo are in the Muppets troupe they are in the Muppet show and Statler and Waldorf are the metafictional commentary on the Muppet show. But here, those pairs have switched. And so we have Statler and Waldorf are embedded in the narrative and are kind of the inciting an inciting incident for the, that night um, slash messengers, heralds or whatever. And then Gonzo and Rizzo are half out of the story to um, be the narrator. And it's like, that is, an interesting move that I don't know if it was thought about thought of in those terms, because like you wouldn't have Statler and Waldorf do that bit all the way through this movie as the narrators. It's like they functionally, it's not going to accomplish the same thing. The sense that I get from like the Henson troupe of performers is that to engender or like to make it so that people could step into those roles and really thrive makes me believe. And I hope that, that's just a really supportive group to work with where everybody is helping everybody and where it is easier to kind of learn the things outside of your individual role for the moment so that people can kind of trade in or step into one another's shoes or the, and or that there's enough of a house style. Like maybe the the guy who took over his current was already like the understudy. I don't know those things. That's something else that like a history of the Muppets would know.
2: Well, I can tell you that Whitmire was so nervous. There's like an apocryphal story that I was reading about this. He was so nervous about taking over the role. Understandably, Jim Henson, it's a lot, lo- shoes, really big shoes. And so apparently he was so nervous that like the night before he was supposed to record the, the singing parts for Kermit, he says he had a dream that, you know, he he met Jim Henson in his dream and told Jim Henson he was so worried. And Jim Henson just basically turned to him and said, like, that all that stuff will pass with time and you'll feel fine. And it, it's like all normal. And the next day he felt all confident he went in and did his parts. So I don't know how true that is. That sounds like one of those like stories that like is a little bit too fanciful. But at the same time, who knows? Like that whole like Muppet world is like full of magic anyway. But mm-hmm. this movie is super important. Not only for the Henson company, but for the Muppets, because this is the movie that arguably makes sure that the Muppets continue to remain relevant, because once Jim Henson dies, there's always that concern. He's the person that like is the the spearhead of this whole project. He's not alone. He's working with a lot of great folks like Frank Oz, etc. But once he passes, like there's always that concern of like, well, does this thing die? Can this thing survive without his genius? And the answer is the whole point of Jim Henson wasn't that he was alone. He was never alone. He was, as Mike, I think you're kind of hinting at, you know, he had people working under him who were were learning with him. He worked with other people who continued to work on the Muppets. You know, there was a shared amount of knowledge. And then this movie gets made partly with the son of Jim Henson. A lot of people who studied under Jim Henson or people who worked with Jim Henson and they studied under them, et cetera, et cetera, that magic still exists here. And it didn't die. It didn't leave. Jim Henson left the gift to the world, which was the Muppets. Thank you, Jim Henson and all the other lovely people like Richard Hunt, etc., who who helped work on this. Because I get to watch this every Christmas and feel pure, unadulterated joy. Mm -hmm. And no one can take it away from me. No, they cannot.
0: Uh, Shoutouts to the Ghost of Christmas Present for being just an absolute delight and like tour de force of cheer.
2: He really was, right? But he just sings that song like, you know, it feels like Christmas. And he's just like this whole like dancing number and everything. He even gets Michael Caine to dance.
1: That's still one of my favorite beats of the movie as well. Ebenezer Scrooge, who still has lessons to learn, has just heard a song, and the song is such a bop that he starts dancing anyway. It's very nice. Very good. You gotta do the Scrooge dance. Oh god, let's not make that a thing. It
0: is is really just a variation on the White Boy Shuffle.
2: It is, (laughs) but I mean, it's in time, you know, to the beat.
1: Yeah, that's the only thing going for it, really. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's not a great dance, but at the same time, like... Isn't that the point of a dance? Is like It doesn't need to be good. It, are they having fun? That's really what yeah. matters.
1: You're expressing yourself, and that's what counts.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the ghost of Christmas present's not bothered. The ghost of Christmas present is like laughing and smiling and jumping up and down. He's like, yeah, you boogie very stiffly because you haven't actually shaked your booty in 45 straight years. His joints are rusty. He needs some time to like loosen up. He'll mm-hmm. be doing the worm within yes. a week. It's fine.
0: Yes, classic Victorian dance, the worm,
2: the worm. Yeah. <laughs> well, any final thoughts from either of you before we close this out?
1: My final thoughts are: I am grateful that this movie exists. This is the first time that I've completely seen the Muppet Christmas Carol, and I'm I I do think it endures for a reason, similar to the reason the enti- the story at Christmas Carol itself endures. I hesitate to say that it's perfect for no other reason than because very few things in the world are perfect. But it's so close to perfect that I am, I am willing to let that slide. And I do think it's perhaps one of the best adaptations of a thing that has ever been adapted
0: that exists. It makes me want the Muppets adaptation of classic literature to come back.
1: That would be really nice. If there's a thing that you want adapted, which one, what would it be?
0: I think the, uh, so here, here, this is kind of a, a, a slight callback, uh, the Muppets Pride and Prejudice. Hmm. And I think the one, I think the one human is not either of the romantic leads.
2: <laughs> Are the romantic leads Kermit and Piggy?
0: I mean, that's the easy, uh, that's the easy approach. You could also have the, those two leads both be the humans and then have everybody else be Muppets. But I think sticking with classic literature is fun at this point honestly you could do a muppets remake of classic like 20th century film there's probably enough like cultural historical di- uh distance to make to have a a remake where m- making it muppet is an interest like an interesting enough um, move yeah to kind of like do something with
1: Citizen Kane Citizen Kane would actually work yeah Citizen Kane would actually
0: yeah, some, some kind of Muppets Hitchcock.
2: Oh, like, like Rear Window or something?
1: That could be really interesting.
0: Yeah, Kermit as the lead in Rear Window. I
1: have it in my head. Either North by Northwest with Kermit as the lead, or yep. the answer that I had in my brain, Much Ado About Nothing. Ooh. But Beatrice and Benedict are both played by two gonzos.
2: That would be something. Yeah, let's do it.
1: Yeah.
0: I like it.
2: Henson Company, call us. I mean, it's Disney now, but like, whatever, call us still.
0: Yeah, call us instead of, like, scraping content from Wattpad.
2: Yeah, yeah, let's not do that. Oh, God. Well, I think we got it. I'm guessing we're giving it all an A+. Yeah, pretty much.
0: The A+, is about what it makes me feel, rather than my, like, trying to place it within, like, a cinematic, critical tradition.
1: I mean... Viewing it from a critical lens, it is perhaps still one of the best adaptations of A Christmas Carol compared to all of its contemporaries. Even probably going back all the way to, what, 1908? So on that level, I would still rate it very highly. But also, even if I were to be even even more harsh about the movie, then that would be putting me out of the Christmas spirit. So, True. in keeping with the theme... I'm not going to do that.
2: One thing to think about is this movie's next year will be 30 years old Mm -hmm. since its release. It's 30 years old in terms of production at this point. Right. And if you think about it, like nothing we brought up. like When we go back in time, we start looking at films back in time. Like we find lots of problematic stuff in movies, you know, Mm -hmm. because you go back 30 years or, you know, to the 80s, you're going to find all kinds of stuff that just would not be acceptable. Like, even in kids' movies. Like, the closest this gets to is, like, does, like, Gonzo look a little bit too much at one of the birds? Like, is that, like, the closest we get to a potentially problematic thing here?
0: I think any complaints I have are complaints that emerge from the original story, not from the movie.
2: Yeah, so they wouldn't be necessarily its fault, yeah.
1: And even then, the story is a product of its time as well. It was written to accomplish a duty, and it has been accomplishing that duty for years now.
0: Exceptionally high marks to The the Muppet's Christmas Carol.
1: It's not very often. All three of us agree that a movie is good, but this time we have.
2: (laughs) We have done it. Well, perfect. So thanks, everybody, for joining us today for one of the last episodes of the year. Um, One of our last at the movies of the year. In fact, the last at the movies of the year. So, as always, if you want to let us know what you thought, you have thoughts about this movie, or you want to let us know what your favorite perfect Christmas movie is, you can go to skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions and let us know. If you would like, you can also follow us at skiffyandfanty on Twitter and Instagram and get our newsletter at skiffyandfanty.com slash newsletter. And if you like what we do... You can support us at patreon.com slash in which you should send some of your monies to. You know, don't be a scrooge, as they as they say. <laughs> and you can also give us love by, you know, writing reviews on various media platforms like iTunes and other podcatchers. As for me, you can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, Seanduke.net, Patreon.com slash the Joy Factory, and currently still streaming as Alphabet Streams on Twitch.
1: You can find me at the rising at the rising tithes on Twitter at Speculate, where I GM the case of the Seal. And coming soon to streaming again at twitch.tv slash the rising tides underscore.
0: And you can find me at Mike R Underwood on Twitter. My website is Michael michaelrunderwood.com. I GM various things and play at speculatesf.com. And stream video games at twitch.tv slash turbotango.
1: me, 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 me.
0: What? Sean, you need to get outside what? more often.
1: Of all the things that you could have possibly... All right. Okay, cool. All right.
0: <laughs> Someone who lives near Sean, go check on him. At
1: Christmas, no less. <laughs> During Christmas, no less. That was a thing that you guys decided to say. Okay, wow. Cool. Okay,
0: Christmas okay. Right. ruined. Well,
1: on that note, <laughs>
2: ah. awkward ending and scene. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy Thank you for listening.